Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1946 film Gilda. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, thanks. Uh, Barrett, we are revisiting a sort of classic film noir. So this is a, a 1946, uh, 1946 film. Um, and this is a film which is referenced, uh, referenced in Mulholland Drive, referenced in other films. Uh, what is your history with Gilda? Yeah, I, you know, um, probably about 15 years or so ago, I, with a friend of mine who's also a cinephile, I kind of started digging into the whole catalog of classic noirs. So I would have watched the film. I've never seen it in the theater. I would have watched it on DVD probably about that time. So there's, you know, there's that history of watching it, but there's also the history of kind of knowing about it as a kind of, um, it's kind of an iconic film, mostly because of Rita Hayworth. So it's it's always had a large reputation and we can tease this out in our conversation, uh, Sam. I don't know if it is as good as its reputation, but it's certainly, as I said, iconic. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because my, as I said, I, you know, I always watch the, try to watch these films twice. And my, my first impression was that it was kind of, especially coming off Mulholland drive, it felt a little lightweight, Mm -hmm. but then I don't know. I watched it again and thought, well, it's actually kind of interesting. Even if it's lightweight, maybe it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I think in what it's, how it is and how it's not film noir um you yep. know how it's it, it's playing with some of those things so so it's definitely an interesting document um and i ended up having uh, quite a bit of respect for it by the time i kind of worked my way through it um the director of this film is uh, charles vidor uh yeah. so he directed 39 films between 1929 and 1960 um he's not somebody i'm particularly familiar with it's not a name that jumped out at me is he somebody who is uh, has any kind of regard as a director or a stylist or anything like that? Or is he just a kind of studio workman making movies? Yeah, that's a really good question, Sam. Yeah, he's certainly nobody. He's certainly not a director that anybody would mistake uh, as an auteur. Um, yeah, very workmanlike. Uh, but, you know, one thing you have to say about him is um, he o- he often got really good performances out of actors. He was kind of known as an actor's director. We talked about that with William Wyler as well. So, you know, um, so, for example, Jimmy Cagney got his his uh, one of his uh, got an Oscar nomination uh, for one of Vidor's films. There's like, several other actors that either got nominated or got Oscars as a result. So he was known as working really well with actors. And then in particular, he had a, um, a very close connection with uh, both Glenn Ford and uh, and Rita Hayworth. He directed them in their first. They made a total of six pictures together, by the way. Um, but he directed them in their first picture together called The Lady in Question. He directed them again in uh, The Loves of Carmen. So, yeah, he's yeah, he not, he's not a great director in terms of having a distinctive style, but he's um, he kind of embodies that high degree of competence that the studio system managed to create. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I will say going into this film, I was culturally familiar with Rita Hayworth. Um, Glenn Ford's not somebody I had any uh maybe because i'm not a huge western fan and i think i think part of his career is making westerns right um so so who is who is glenn ford in 1946 yeah he's not he's not a big star yet his uh his career began in 1939 1940 i don't think at this point in his career he's really settled into a particular genre uh as you said you associate him with westerns but he also becomes associated with noirs Mm -hmm. uh he makes a really fine noir with um, Fritz Lang in 1953 called The Big Heat, which I think is maybe one of his best performances. But at this point, he's just kind of a he's kind of a good looking guy who's uh, I mean, he's not necessarily a heavy. He's not necessarily a good guy. He can kind of play a variety of different roles. Yeah, I liked him in this movie because he feels uh appropriately potentially overmatched the, the character he's playing like mm-hmm. like he he's maybe not up to the situation that he's in um and and i i find that actually uh that actually works really well for for what some of the things i think this movie is trying to do um <clears throat> so we, we watched this movie this week in part because this is referenced in or the poster for this is referenced mm-hmm. in lynch's mulholland drive um why do you think Lynch was drawn? Because that's obviously an intentional choice. Why why does Lynch make it Gilda? Why does Lynch make it Rita Hayworth? Well, I think there's some ways in which Gilda as a character, or Rita Hayworth as an actress, 
kind of embodies the the Hollywood the Hollywood star system. The kind of um, I mean, she was Rita Hayworth was one of the first kind of bombshells, you know. And for in fact, as you probably know, most people probably know one of the atom bombs that they dropped in the uh, bikini atoll had her name on it. So she was a literal bombshell. So I I think so she kind of embodies the kind of Hollywood dream. You know, she'd been around for a while. I mean, she'd, she'd been making pictures for almost 10 years when, when Gilda came out. But this was the star-making turn for her. Uh, and so I think for all that, so I think the fact that she embodies that Hollywood mystique is uh, is really what probably attracted uh, Lynch. Yeah, I also thought about, I mean, even things within the film. One mm-hmm. of the, the things that uh, that comes up is both Johnny and Gilda. Mm-hmm talk intentionally about saying i have no past like i yeah. i am born to and and you know so it's interesting that that in in mulholland drive rita because of amnesia has mm-hmm. no past mm-hmm. right um there's also i i was thinking a little bit maybe more and this is maybe a stretch sort of meta with thinking about rita hayworth um where she like like many stars do um you know changes her name actually goes through some procedures to change her look to look less uh the, the language that was used in what i read was look less sort of southern mediterranean she comes mm-hmm. from a you know a partially uh romani background um in in spain um so so i was wondering like if there is also this sense that in in Mulholland Drive, we see this transformation happen, you know, with um with the Rita character as well. So, so I think there's maybe some sort of meta things going on there as well with that. Yeah, and I, and I think if I recall, I think she was also known for changing her hair color a lot as well. Mm-hmm. She's an natural redhead, but of course you can't tell in a black and white film. But still, she did change her hair color quite a bit as well. Yes, yes. And then the other movie that that I'm familiar with gilda specifically from is a movie i watched i think uh two or three weeks ago with my daughter is the shawshank redemption so oh, this yeah. makes up makes an explicit um i mean they actually show the show show the famous clip of of um gilda kind of popping into frame as the prisoners are watching this movie and then it's a poster of rita hayworth uh is used there um i was trying to find like a particular connection why that would be something that either Darabont or King was drawn to because I know it's in the King story the the, the Rita Hayworth connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I could think of is the sort of safe that hides the secrets that sort of <laughs> uncover these things, but I couldn't find a lot of other particular Gilda connections in in Sha- between Shawshank and this. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm glad you mentioned. You know, there's there's a couple of uh, kind of famous scenes in this film, and obviously the first one is the one you've already referred to, which is the the, the great hair flip. Um, and then there's, of course, towards the end, the, the striptease with the second performance of Blame, uh, Blame It on Mame. Um, you know, how do you achieve a striptease just by taking off a pair of gloves? You know, she, she managed to do that. But that but I want to mention as a result, or, or I mentioned that because the cinematographer of the film, you know, we talked about uh, Vidor being kind of a journeyman. But the cinematographer is Rudolf Maté, uh, who's of similar Hungarian, Polish Hungarian extraction as Vidor. But he was the cinematographer of The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, oh. Yeah. And then he went on to be the cinematographer again with Rita Hayworth in her Orson Welles' Lady from Shanghai. So he, I would say, is, is, is a little bit more of a kind of a, of a master craftsman. And I think it's one of the reasons it's, it's a really the film has a very interesting look. I mean, there's those two scenes. There's really interesting use of shadow. There's that one scene where uh, uh, Baron is actually in silhouette um it's so there's a lot of there's a lot about this film about the way that it looks that i think is really pretty impressive yeah absolutely one of the things i noticed um because not knowing where this film was going i kept trying to kind of predict like oh this is the kind of story this is going to be and then it wouldn't be that and this is the kind of story it was going to be um one thing i've been critical of in in some movies is this idea of like a movie telling me people are in love and then be feeling like "Ah." and and i had a while here where i thought that was going on and then i realized oh no no this is not a story about people who are in love um this is this is a movie that sometimes wants you to think that but also wants you to realize this is about something else so i actually found that that's that tension that I feel to be actually very effective in this movie because I kept trying to make sense out of relationships um, in terms of what the movie was, was pushing me towards or telling me 
in words and then what it was telling me in reality or in, in I should say in action. Um, and I, I really like that because it sort of creates almost like a, like an anti-love triangle. <laughs> I mean, you have this, this, this triangle between, between Bal and Johnny and Gilda. Um, but I don't think there's necessarily what I would think of as love in any direction there, but it functions still like a love triangle. I thought that was really interesting in the construction of this movie. Well, I also think it's one of the ways in which the movie, you know, we we could talk a little bit about, you know, what boxes for noir does the movie tick? Which ones does it not tick? Um, it certainly ticks the box of, you know, what the French call amour fou, right? The, the This notion of crazy love, which becomes indistinguishable from hate. So I think about, uh, I think about double indemnity, what happens in the, in the relationship there. I think about gun crazy, uh, think about out of the past. I mean, in, in all of those films, um, it is really difficult at any given time to distinguish between um, it, it, the, um, the emotion of love, the emotion of hate. And Balan says at one point, you know, hate is a very exciting emotion, something mm-hmm. like that. And, and, and it, so it seems that so to me, that's one of the ways in which the film really kind of taps into a, a noir sensibility. Um, one of the ways in which it does not is Gilda is not a femme fatale. Um, she is much less powerful uh, than, than the typical femme fatale. If you compare her to those three other films I just mentioned, she's much more of a pawn in this, as you, as you observe, in this kind of triangle where, um, you know, Johnny and Balin each have this different relationship to her, and then they've got a relationship to each other. Um, and, and she's kind of a pawn that keeps getting pushed around. And every move that she tries to make to create some kind of agency for herself uh, results in her being trapped and pulled back in. Right. And, 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 you know, to your point of her not being a femme fatale, she doesn't draw any character into this like deeper, darker underworld. It's like she shows up into that underworld, you know, that it's, it's already, it's already there. If anything, I was, you know, I was trying to think like, if anything, Balan is almost closer to, (laughs) to the femme fatale in terms of like, I think uh, I love the way this 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 movie refuses to give you the backstory, but that it hints at. But um, I think both Johnny and Gilda are already have a foot in that world to some degree. But Balin really is the one who pulls them deeply into it, uh, and he so he definitely functions more like that in this movie. Um, uh, so. I mean, uh, there's some other sort of obvious noir things. So I was sort of interested where this fits in the kind of the noir canon. So we get the the voiceover. I mean, it starts with it starts with voiceover, which goes away mm. probably 75 percent of the way through the film. We stop hearing Johnny's voiceover, um, especially as we're getting to the end of the movie. Um, we definitely get the kind of criminal underworld conspiracy cartel. Like, like there's there's all this stuff that is. Uh, intentionally kind of hard to get your head around. Um, you get you get characters who are clearly running from a past. Um, and uh, so that's what I found interesting is I was thinking about noirs that we saw. I think I was thinking a lot about like out of the past where you have a character and then partway through the movie, we go back and sort of reveal the past that's motivating some action. So I, that was another misdirect for this movie is I kept waiting for like, okay, when are we going to flash back and Johnny is going to tell us what happened? And mm-hmm. then we'd have to decide whether we believe him or not. But the, this movie just doesn't do that, um, which makes it uh, not in the least disappointing. Like I was not disappointed to not know the past. I kind of loved because it, because it, it, it sort of opens up to potentially being uh multiple types of things that could that could lead to whatever that um that divide is well you know it's almost in a sense it's almost shakespearean i I think about the love-hate relationship of iago and othello in in shakespeare's play and you know iago never really offers adequate uh motivation for his actions uh coleridge famously called it motiveless malignity um, I, I wouldn't say that Johnny is necessarily motiveless, but I think that, you know, there's hints of what happened. You know, he feels betrayed by her. Um, but I think by not specifying it, what the film enables us to do is to focus on 
the raw emotion, regardless of whether or not it is kind of justified. And how could you ever justify? I mean, the, 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 the way he treats her, I mean, how could there be justification for that? So I think in a sense, it's better that it's sort of kept, uh, it, it's kept as something almost mysterious in its origin. The other thing I want to say about her in, in terms of being both like and unlike the typical femme fatale is um, often the femme fatale is a woman looking to get ahead in some way or another. There's usually some, some kind of ambition. If you think about um, you know Barbara Stanwyck's character in Double Indemnity or Kathy in Out of the Past or, or Gun Crazy. Um, but the other thing that those characters are often looking for, and this is true of Rita, uh, or Gilda, they're looking for security. You know, so we don't know why she's married Balan or why Balan's married her. He's only known her for a day or two. Um, but she evidently is in that marriage and we, she doesn't appear to be a gold digger. She just seems to be there because it's giving. I mean, obviously she enjoys the comfort he offers, but I, I you know, I, I don't see her as somebody who has that kind of clawing ambition that you see in the typical uh, femme fatale. So again, there's elements, but there's other th- parts that are missing. Well, and, and Balance says as much. I mean, there's a point where um, where Johnny asks him something and he's like, she's not interested in, in money. She's she's and, and it's almost like Balance confused why she's there. Mm-hmm. Johnny's confused why she's there. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I really I, I that that's the part of this movie that on second watch, I just felt like went from being something that I felt was a little confusing to like, oh, this is actually the strength of this movie. So you know, it's, it's, it's almost like they want her to behave like a femme fatale and she doesn't. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, whose story is this? I, I ask this because we, it, it tells us this is Johnny's point of view because he's the one who gets the voiceover. He's the one the story starts with and Gilda sort of appears in that story. But then the way you talk about Gilda and the, we think about the title of this movie, like, like by the time you get to the end, like, like, like who is the, who, yeah. Whose story is this? I think that's a really good question, Sam. And, 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 and I do want to say something as we're talking about great shots in the film. I love the opening shot of him throwing the dice. I just, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful shot. I, I, I think you've actually made a really good point that um, it appears to be Johnny's story but one of the reasons, perhaps, why his narration drops out in the last part of the film is that I think what happens is your sympathy shifts over to Gilda. Because, you know, with Johnny controlling the narration and the idea that, you know, she's a terrible woman and she deserves what she gets and she's betraying Balin and I'm going to be Balin's right-hand man and I'm going to make sure that we keep her in line. I think that when the narration drops out and probably about the point that she gets hauled back from Montevideo, uh, and you realize that she is being uh, controlled, manipulated, deceived, I think it then does become much more, you become much more sympathetic to her, uh, not, and not only because of that, but also because of a key role of Uncle Pio uh, and the way that he comments. I mean, he he's almost like a Greek chorus, the way he comments on and at Johnny. So I think by the end of the film, we realize eh, it's really... It's really, it really is Gilda's story. Johnny thought it was his story, but it's actually Gilda's. Yeah, no, I, I had the exact same thought because there is this moment, and I think uh, you, you sort of pinpoint it uh, rightly. Uh, it, it really is the moment where Johnny becomes Balan. Yes. <laughs> he just becomes, I mean, like when you find out that he marries her right away and you're like, wait a minute, I don't know why Balan married her. I really don't know why Johnny married her. And then the fact that that they get married, they go to the apartment and he's like, I'm gone. You're just stuck here now. And you're like, this, he's doing what Balan did, which also didn't fully make sense. Um, and and that that's to me, that's where it does slip to like, oh, OK, I, I guess I guess I didn't know who I was dealing with. And I think because and it, that's what makes that voiceover so powerful is because you think you're you think he's the person whose side you're on. So it also leads you early on to think Gilda probably did something pretty awful to him. Mm-hmm. And then and then by the time you get to the end, you're like, well, maybe he did something because he's obviously capable of being pretty awful. Maybe he did something pretty awful. like like, like it, 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 it makes you go back to what you thought the whatever the history that they had was and, and rethink it and say, well, you know, without, without getting her point of view. Plus there's the fact, there's the fact that Johnny doesn't talk about the past, Mm. even to us. 
where it's like, well, if he was right and justified, wouldn't he want to tell us that? But he doesn't. So, yeah, I, I, I just I find that really, really uh, well done. And we have to remember who he is when we meet him. Right. He's a scraggly cheater at, at, at dice. I mean, this is not, you know, and so this, he's, he's not a great guy. And uh, and I think this gets back to what you're asking about who is Glenn Ford, right? I mean, so he's a he's a good looking guy, right? So maybe your friend when he, he cleans up really well, but inside he's he's still kind of the borderline criminal in a sense. Okay, and 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 what you just expressed is the partial function of Pio's character too, right? Yes. He's the one who keeps pointing out. <laughs> you're a peasant <laughs> like 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 you know you can do all of these things and and i love the moment when uh balan is threatened and gilda is in danger and there's sort of this sense of like johnny has to choose and po's there and he's like okay this is when we get to figure out whether you're a gentleman like you say or a peasant like i say he's like your meal tickets up there Gilda's in there and and when he goes up to Balan, he's like you're a peasant like like I, mm-hmm. I I am right no matter what you look like uh yeah I I mean I thought of the um I thought of a Greek chorus or or again um kind of like the fool in Lear you know mm-hmm. sort of being like I am the lowest status person here but I'm also speaking truth to you and 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 uh you can ignore me as long as you want and you can wield power over me as long as you want but it doesn't change the fact that what i'm saying is true by the way i just want to say apropos of nothing other than the fact that stephen gray plays uh P- uncle pio that uh he was the head waiter in uh, in a lonely place uh oh. yeah he's he's one of these guys he just keeps popping up in a lot of especially films noir and i just i just love him in this film i i, I love the i love the scene where Johnny fires him, but he can't fire him. It's like Uncle Pio just cannot yes. go cannot go away. So in some, so he's actually kind of the moral center of the film, right? If there's if there's one character you can you can approve of and sympathize with, uh, and kind of look to for some kind of perspective, it's 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 Uncle Pio, and uh, and he gets away with uh, murder at the end because you can't kill a dead man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and he even says like, there, there's a reason that I work where I do. There's something about the worm's eye view of the world. Like that, that's the, that yeah. that's the honest view of the world. That's right. Um, so I actually have a, I have a question for you about dialogue and maybe there's not a name for this, but this movie, especially Gilda's dialogue, a lot of what she does. And it's a, it's a very like clever, it's a kind of a very clever speak. Like someone will say something to her and she'll kind of like, invert the question that they asked to make it a question about themselves. I feel mm. like she does that throughout the movie. Is there mm. a name for that? Cause like I, 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 in my notes, I kept wanting to write something about it. I'm like, but I don't even know what that's called. Maybe it's a variation on echolalia. <laughs> that's the only thing I, I can think of. Yeah. But you know it's what I'm talking exactly about. You just said it kind of inverts it. So yeah. 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 Defla- so, I don't know, deflection. I mean, it's a kind of deflection you could say. Yeah. As well. Yeah. But it, en- but it ends up making everything she says sound clever. It's yeah. like, Oh, you're asking this, but what, like, like, uh, you know, an example, like, like he asks, like, uh, you know, aren't you worried about what would happen if Balin finds out? And she just says, well, aren't you worried what would happen if Balin <laughs> finds out? And it's like, cause he's like, that's really what you're, what you're thinking about, but you're putting this on me when I, when I'm going to put it back on you. And I feel like, like in some ways she must've been an easy character to write because that's a lot of what she's doing is just pointing out. And, you know, and, and we're going to get to the relationships in here because I think that's, that's the, a really interesting thing at the, at, at the core of this one other thing before we get to that, that I, that I thought about with this, um, I kept thinking about how great of a pairing and this movie would make with Casablanca oh, yeah. sort of, sort of in it, like inverting, you know, um, because it, cause you know, it, you're in a land filled with expats, right. Mm-hmm. Who are all fleeing from, their past. I don't even know where Balin's from, but he sure doesn't seem like an Argentinian to me. No. <laughs> um, uh, you have this sort of mysterious nightclub owner with an illegal gambling establishment that everybody knows about. And, you know, nobody, you know, as long as you're paying off the right people, you can, you can keep going. The Germans show up and try to flex their muscle. So you get <laughs> like, you get kind of a similar setup, but then you get this like inversion in terms of like its relationship to the war. Casablanca is, kind of just as the war is starting mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. this i love my favorite moment in this film is um when 
uh, it's Johnny first connects with Balin and he's like, you know, and I, we soon became close friends and I kind of worked my way to the top. Oh yeah. And the war ended. It's like, it's just like this, this like afterthought of like the, the war is the backdrop to this because it sets up actually what Balin's doing with the tungsten and all this stuff. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's sort of like, I guess I should mention the war ended. We're not really involved in that. I, I, I really loved, I, there's something that just both times I watch it, that struck me as so funny about the way that, he mentions that and and how telling that these folks in Buenos Aires seem um, in some ways, you know, a universe away from, from world war two. And at the same time, deeply tied into it. Well, you know, as long, well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned this, Sam, because the fact that the film is both set in world war two and then post world war two is another one of the ways in which it has no R characteristic. No R is often are dealing with the war or the aftermath of the war. You could also pair it, if you want to pair it, you could pair it with a contemporary film, which is Notorious, uh, which also deals with, uh, with, uh, with Nazis, uh, in, re- in this case, in Brazil. So, that, that, so that's, a, and that's all, it's not exactly a noir, it's more of a spy film, but still, it's got that kind of similar interest in the South American connection to, to the war. Um, so I, th- then the other, the other way that I feel like it's, it's an interesting inversion of... of um... Casablanca is both of them have at the center these triangles between two men mm-hmm. and, a, and a woman and in Casablanca I really think about all of those are are versions of love and respect like I feel like there's a degree to which I mean Rick loves Ilsa Rick respects Laszlo and in some way is like Laszlo is somebody who stands up for something and he sort of that makes him question himself and his own actions you know, Ilsa loves both of them. Mm-hmm. Laszlo loves Ilsa, but Laszlo also has some degree of respect for what Rick could be. Like, there's this like admiration between them. But in this movie, there's sort of this uh, the opposite of that, right? That there is all all these characters are drawn together, connected together, have an attraction to each other. But there is this kind of hostility, or at least di- hostile distance at the same time that they're drawn together. So it, it takes that triangle and does something different with it. Yeah. And, and you know, we talked, I talked earlier about gaining uh, empathy for, uh, for, for Gilda, but it really isn't a film with particularly likable people in it as a result, which is kind of a challenge for the audience, which is again, why I think we have the initial narration to draw us into Johnny's point of view a little bit. And then once you're hooked, it kind of leaves you to discover that it's Gilda's story, but it certainly doesn't have the kind of, um, I, I, I don't think it invites you to have the same kind of emotional involvement that a film like Casablanca does. I think there's the film is a little bit deliberately off-putting because these are not especially nice people in some really weird situations. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the some of these fascinating relationships. I think the the Bal and Johnny relationship is deeply strange and and you know, at, at first blush if you're if you if you're thinking about it i i read some articles and and uh, and there was sort of an encouragement to say take <clears throat> you know what would happen if you took that relationship if you took that relationship and just instead of read it as like maybe subtextually this is a uh this is a romantic relationship to some degree between them and just sort of read that as an assumption uh, as you watch it, and it does make some more sense out of some of the things that people do where you're like, I don't fully understand. Um, I don't understand, you know, elements of that. So like at the beginning of the film, we see Balin, you know, save Johnny and he saves him in in, in multiple ways. I mean, he saves him from potentially getting killed, you know, uh, in, in, in the robbery. And he also saves him by pulling him up uh, to this position of almost a almost a partner in um, in the hotel and casino. You know, and he talks about his uh, his two little friends, his mm-hmm. his sword cane and Johnny. So he's also that's also sort of implying that Johnny is a a tool as well, to the same degree that 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 uh, cane is. Well, you know, I I watched the film with my wife, who uh, who doesn't particularly enjoy noir, but said that she would watch it with me. And you know, and at one point she says, you know, this doesn't make any sense. What? what why is he all of a sudden like running this casino? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. And I said, well, you have to realize that, you know, this is 1946 and the code is in effect. And so there is a coded homoerotic relationship between the two guys that you can't engage explicitly. But look at that cane. 
um, and, 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 and look at the, yes, the inexplicability of why would Dallin suddenly pluck this guy out of obscurity and kind of make him his right-hand man. That's, that's a version of how do you explain suddenly falling in love with somebody? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, so I, it's another one of those examples that we talked a lot about in the past, Sam, where the code really makes for better filmmaking because you can't have an explicit relationship between two men, but you can kind of hint at it, which, by the way, could be something else that Lynch picked up on in Mulholland Drive when he creates the relationship between the two women. Uh, and here we have the relationship between the two men. So I think that that's a really important subtext because then what happens with the Balan Johnny relationship is it also becomes as complex as the Johnny Gilder relationship because what appears to be some kind of love attraction between the two men becomes a kind of love hate attraction which, between the two men. And you and, and it seems as though none of these characters can regard the other with any kind of a pure emotion, right? It's always this mixture of these two very volatile emotions kind of living in tension with each other. Absolutely. And, and then it, 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 it sort of helps to make sense out of like, why, um, why Johnny's so threatened by Gilda and he's so surprised by Gilda and threatened by her um, because they, you know, right before Gilda shows up, they make this toast, you know, to the three of us, the, the, <laughs> Johnny Ballin and the cane, you know, and, 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 you know, they even say like, like, like no women, right. That the women in gambling don't mix. And there is this sense of like, you know, even, even if we're supposed to, you know, pretend this is a platonic relationship, it's at least like, like, like we know that that's something weird that we don't want to get involved. And then the next thing we see Ballin do is bring Gilda in. Um, so it makes me think about like, is, you know, is Gilda a test? That like like why does Balin bring Gilda in? Mm. Is Gilda a test for Johnny to see like okay like I'm going to bring in I'm going I'm going to acquire another possession you know another you know um this this beautiful object and he definitely talks about her like a possession and you know Johnny talks about her as a possession of Balin's that he is meant to protect just like he's meant to protect his interest in the casino and these types of things. Um, well, another way to think about that, though, Sam, is and this is this is a classic way of dealing with um, either rumors that somebody is a homosexual or the or somebody actually being a homosexual. And that is, well, we'll get married. Exactly. Yeah. And so so it's balanced blind in, in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's his it's his uh, it's something he can hide behind. See, I've got a wife and it, it may even be for himself as well. I mean, you, you really can't you really can't tell. Which is why I also want to say that one of the things about this film that I that I think is both noirish and goes deeper than noir is it's really a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and one thing I want to point out is, and you may tell me I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a single daylit scene. I think That's there's a I think there's a crepuscular scene when they go to the airport. It's 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 dusk. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I don't think there's a single scene that is not either at night or an interior when it presumably is dark outside. In fact, my wife said to me, don't these people ever sleep? I mean, they, they, they do nothing. There's nothing normal about this. I mean, all you get in their life, it, it reminds, my, reminds me of the noir called They Live by Night. Mm-hmm. And so to me, this is one of the ways in which the film draws attention to itself as a psychological drama because everything happens at night and in the dark. Um, anyway, so that's that. That's to me, that's a, a really important element of how it's staged. You're absolutely right. You're, you're. I'm trying. Yeah, because I think the only, the closest thing we get, I think it's at dawn when that plane crashes. Because at dawn, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like it's after it's after the night of all this. Oh yeah, happening. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, other than you know, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, like like where the marriage scene takes place when they walk out to the car, if that's a yeah, day or night. Yeah. But like, but other than, but that's irrelevant. I mean, I, your 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 point is taken that they, yeah, they seem to be these like night creatures who yeah. are driven. Yeah. Uh, and and that that I actually feel like this is a movie that feels like people like you're watching people who never sleep or never sleep enough. <laughs> You know, that yeah, there's, I mean, that, there's that, kind that, of desperation in what in actions. Yeah, that scene when she's playing on, she's playing, you know, Blame It on Mame the first time on the guitar. It's five o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and she's fully dressed and he's fully dressed. 
you know, when they come back from the supposedly swimming outing, I mean, what time of night is that? It's like, it's, it's just as though daytime does not exist and sleeping Absolutely. doesn't exist. Absolutely. Um, so why do you think Gilda, if we're thinking about relationships, why does she marry Balin? And is it, I mean, is it for some sense of security? Is, is, do you think her past is, is littered with Balin's? Hard to say. I mean, uh, we don't know exactly when she and Johnny parted ways. So is she on the rebound from Johnny? You know, that's possible. Um, I think it feels like it. I, I, I think it's, I think it's security, uh, maybe emotional security as much as anything. Um, as Balan says, she doesn't really care about, you know, all these finer things. But I, th- I think it probably is emotional security. Although at the same time, you know, I said earlier she wasn't a femme fatale. But at the same time, you see her doing all that flirting, right? And we haven't talked about the fact that she keeps going off the rails and Johnny keeps pulling her back in. Now, maybe she's doing that to get Johnny's attention, um maybe she's doing it just to infuriate johnny but that is the one area where she does seem to exercise some agency which does suggest that she's that she's not with balan because she in any way loves balan but he just offers he offers her a secure place but at the same time she seems to be self-destructive enough to want to risk losing that so there's yeah. an oddness about her psychology as well yeah, it's almost an in, an instant sabotaging of if if that is a secure situation, you know, to have to have no, um, uh, yeah, I mean she, that she tries to to sabotage or destroy that at almost every turn and and gleefully does it. But that also seems like she is uh, aware of the the Bal and Johnny relationship and is just like, I know what you're going to do to protect him, so I'm going to punish. I mean, she is punishing him. And that's why I think later he punishes her in that, and you know, in a similar way to mm-hmm. say like, okay, well, here's here's what we're gonna do then. I'm now now that I have this um, this position and this power, I'm gonna sort of turn those um, turn those tables. One of the things that I felt like was a great misdirect in this movie, um, intentional or not, was when Gilda appears and you sort of see the shock from both of them. Of like, mm. oh, I didn't know you were going to be part of this story too. Um, <laughs> I thought for a moment is like, oh, is this a story about two grifters competing mm. mm-hmm. in their grift of Balan? Mm. So I was like, so I kind of was preparing for a sort of a dirty rotten scoundrel situation, and then I realized like, Balan represents something to each of them, but for neither of them does it seem merely like a this is a meal ticket grift, like it, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like. Johnny seems to care about Balin, at least to the degree of like, I can't, I don't want him to know about what you're doing, uh, what you're doing to him, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what the guilt, Gilda's flirtations and things like that, that with other men. Um, so Johnny seems to care about him in that way. Um, and Gilda, see, as we talked about, seems to have no interest in money. So like, so, so I found that, pretty fascinating too because it the most obvious draw to them being that uh connected to balan gets sort of undercut kind of right away and they're both balanced creation right they both talk about the fact that they were reborn or born for born when they met balan so i'm going to make a really a really weird connection now sam and that is that the moment when they meet each other, I'm going to compare it to a to a Bride of Frankenstein moment where one creation meets the other, and they mm. kind of have to deal, and they kind of have to deal with each other. Because because I think that's I think that's what's going on. It's right. It's like you know, here's these two things that he has created or brought to life, and now they're going to have to kind of figure out what is their what is their role in this world that Balan controls or creates. So. <clears throat> Here's here's another question I have in terms of thinking about the character of Balin. So, when he makes his escape, right, and and has the 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 fake uh, plane crash, the moment preceding that, Balin comes back to the house and finds Gilda mm-hmm. and Johnny uh, in the bedroom kissing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. This is what this is why I wondered about. Like, is this a is this sort of a test for Johnny? Like to, uh-huh. to be like, uh, b- because there is this sense of like, like, I wonder if, if I, because Balin seems like 
pretty blank to us. <laughs> you know, if, if we have Johnny's voiceover and we spend a lot of time with Gilda, Balin is almost like this phantom that just sort of appears in rooms. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, his first appearance is seemingly out of nowhere with this cane sword. Right. And, and, and he, and he just sort of shows up in places you, know, you walk into an office and all of a sudden he's there. Um, if he, that, that's why I wondered if this was, if this was sort of this test to see like, well, is, if let, let's assume that, that Balin and Johnny have this relationship, that that's a, that's a, is that a potential test of like, are we having this relationship because it is something genuine or because I am an opportunity for you? Because mm-hmm. I do have, you know, and, and, and was he, I wonder like, was he surprised? Was he surprised to find them together? Because he also keeps pushing them together, you know, which yeah, I find that's interesting. A, as no, that's well. a, yeah. That's a really good point, Sam. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right. He pushes them together. He's, he's testing both of them. Right. And he's, I think he's trying to figure out, you know, which one is really worthy of my love? Which one, which one do I really trust? Which one do I really care about? Uh, and he's discovering that the answer is neither. Not, not, neither of them can really be trusted. And okay. so he, he knows that deep down. He's just trying to gather the evidence that he doesn't really want to have, but he needs. And that's why his will is so interesting because it mm-hmm. gives it all to Gilda, but makes Johnny the executor. Yes. So it's like, it's like he traps them together and it's mm-hmm. like, well, you guys are, if you want to keep going with this, I'm gone, but you two are tied together. So, so in essence, they're punishing each other and he's punishing them by having them in a situation where they're punishing each other. Um, so what do you make of the end of this movie then? Cause uh, it's interesting reading about this. Uh, there were plenty of people who were happy to call this sort of a, a happy ending to this movie and that, that, that somehow cheapens the movie. I do not feel like this is a happy ending. I don't, I don't buy that all of a sudden they are changed and they're going to go back to America and be happy together. I mean, is, are, are they stuck in the purgatory of each other at the end of this movie or? How do you read the ending? Yeah, I, I I think it's an effort at a happy ending. I think it's uh, it's a Hollywood formula, but um, so I, I think the movie is trying to tell you it's a happy ending. Um, so I think there's two different ways to think about it. I think like, I think the I, I I honestly think the movie is trying to convince you that after this struggle they've had with do I I hate him I love him I hate him I love him uh we actually really do love each other I think the movie is trying sincerely to tell you that um but I but I don't buy it for a minute um because there's just there's too much water under the bridge with the with these two for me to believe that somehow they have converted themselves back to being in, in love with each other so I so it's it, it it feels false to me at the end Okay, so here here we get to the question of artist intent. Do you think the intent was so so is that a failure of an ending to a degree in that if the intent is to say actually they they are in love and and this or is it is that a kind of misdirect where we're going to make it look and feel like this but the intent is actually well we all know that this isn't going to work or does that not matter? That's a good question. I, I, th- I think it does matter. I think that it's it's very difficult for me not to see the ending in the context of a certain Hollywood formula. And I feel like if this was not a sincere attempt to tell us that they live happily ever after, the ending would have introduced some form of irony, some form of foreshadowing that would suggest that this is actually not what we're really trying to tell you is going, is going to happen. Um, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, Sam, recently you and I watched um, with some students, we watched Red River, mm-hmm. the Hawks film. And that, and that has an ending that initially struck me as falsely positive. Um, and then we had this really long conversation about it with the students. And they, they managed to convince me that not only was it a happy ending, but it was actually a good happy ending. Uh, that it made sense thematically. I, I'd have to do a little more work with this film to really make me believe either A, that a straight happy ending is, is appropriate, or B, that it looks like a happy ending, but we know that there's a wink and a nod, and mm-hmm. it really isn't. So sure. it, I, 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 we can argue about this, but I'm going to label it a bad ending right now. Okay, yeah, and, and I'm... I'm... I only think it's a happy end. I'm not a happy ending. I only think it's a good ending if I can say, well, 
the ending is is not a happy ending. <laughs> that, that this is this is about these two people who, um, as much as we maybe start to empathize with Gilda more, Gilda's a pretty awful person too, and I and I assume that their paths are pretty pretty awful and dark. I think that they both use people. I mean, they they clearly we clearly see them use people, especially when you find out that you know Gilda in all of these flirtations and sort of relationships she's having that nothing nothing comes of those so she's just using these people and she says well if i can't find if i can't find that same you know rich beautiful american i'll find me another one then like i just i need you know so 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 i if if i can read it that way then i'm going to say then i'm happy i'm happy with this ending if i'm if i meant to believe that this becomes a happy ending then that's i agree with you that's where it rings false when it gets to that point i i think there's two other things they could have done i think they could have done something and it would have required a little, another scene or two i think they could have done something that made it clear that these two were shackled to each other so in other words, this whole idea that you know you can't get an annulment I mean, I just feel like there, there could have been something done that would have indicated that, you know, you're you're married whether you like it or not. Or I would have preferred a third man ending uh, mm. in which they just have to go their separate ways. So, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing about this movie, um, and you, you've mentioned a few times the song Put the Blame on Mame. Yes. And if you pay attention, she performs it twice. But this song appears at least five times in this movie. This mm-hmm. is a musical motif that whether yeah. it is she's listening to it on the record player or uh, the band is practicing the song in the background at a certain point. Um which is interesting because this is this is a song about how all of the ills of the world, even natural disasters, are um, the the blame for them is put on a woman, and especially a woman because of her sexuality. Which yeah. is an interesting song to have in a movie like this with Rita Hayworth at the center of it. Yeah, I'm really glad you you, you brought that up, Sam. Uh, first of all, the the song was written for the movie. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, and it's, I assumed it's, it was like a standard or something. No, it was written for the film. Uh, so it's very thematically connected to the film. And then it, it, it's been recorded a number of times afterwards. But yeah, one of the things I like about, about this, this and it, it deepens the character of Gilda a little bit, because it really is, um, you could call it a feminist ballad, right? Um, I mean, it really is about women being blamed because of, as you said, because of their sexual charms. And um, that in a way, that's, that's one of the ways in which, again, Gilda is and is not a femme fatale. Because she may have feminine wiles, but she certainly doesn't seem to exercise them in a way that uh, women get blamed for. So I think it's, I think it's and I think it's important that she sings the song twice, right? The, the first time it's this kind of solo performance with the guitar, and then the second time it becomes this the strip tease. And I think that I think that says a lot about the way that in which the song is kind of almost both weaponized. And at the same time, it is evidence, I think, of a kind of um, surrender or uh, defeat on her part. Because the first time she sings it solo for Uncle Pio with the guitar, it's kind of like, would you sympathize with me? Because this is the way women get blamed. When she does it as the striptease, it's more like, all right, this is what you want to think about women. You're all right. You're right. You, you think, you know, you think that we are destru- we're destructive with our sexuality. Yeah, you're right. That's the way we are. And it's almost like so. So there's despair behind that that final performance. So I think it's really, really rich. Well, it's interesting to think about. So we talked about the voiceover dropping out in the sort of point of view shift. It's possible to read her singing this song as her version of the voiceover. It's like, here's where she's talking to the, I mean, she's literally talking to the audience of Pio and the audience in that uh, in that nightclub. But potentially, this is her talking to the audience of the film as well. Like this is she doesn't get voiceover, but she gets this um, gets this opportunity to make a case in terms of um, what is how she is potentially being presented in this movie and make you ask the question: Well, is that a is is that an accurate is that an accurate depiction of what's going on? Uh, do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, two footnotes um, to get back to why this film might have be, be relevant to Mulholland Drive. Um, Rita Hayworth, one of the one of the strengths that brought her to Hollywood was um, her dancing, um, and you can see her doing doing some fine dancing in this film. Uh, she had been partner with uh, with Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. 
they very much liked dancing with her. She had a very kind of, as you can see, a very, a, a very kind of a physical approach to the dancing. She wasn't one of those sort of floaty sort of dancers. So her, and so that's a genuine talent that she has. So I just, I can't help but thinking about the fact that Betty wins a jitterbug contest hmm. uh, in in Holland Drive. The other thing that I mentioned last week with the Holland Drive, of course, is that uh, Rita Hayworth does not do her own singing. Um, she's dubbed by a wonderful singer by the name of Anita Ellis. Uh, and so that makes me think again about Club Silencio uh, and the reference to the uh, to it not being not being real. She's a, she is a wonderful lip singer. You really could never tell she wasn't singing, but it's Anita Ellis who's behind it. Oh, interesting. I had one other connection to a movie that you actually mentioned earlier, and I, I, I don't know what to make of this connection other than the line jumped out at me that, I mean, famously in, in a lonely place is the line, you know, I was born when I met oh, you yes. and both, and, now, and that's 1950, um, both Johnny and, and, a, and, and then Balan, I think talks about how, how um, Gilda says this is like when, when that they say I was I was born when we met yesterday like yeah. I don't have a past so so I thought it's thought that was a it was very strange that 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 turn of phrase shows up in both of these but but it speaks to kind of this idea of um people wrestling with a past yeah 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 uh so what do you have for us for next week Barrett well, before I tell you that, Sam, I'm just going to say I want to recommend if folks want to see more of Rita, watch um, Orson Welles' Lady from Shanghai. Uh, he and Rita were he and Rita Hayworth were going through the divorce at that time. Um, uh, and oh, one other thing I want to say is she and Glenn Ford were were such great friends that they actually uh, lived uh, lived next door to each other, uh, and they they had I would say an emotional affair, never actually a physical affair. Okay, so for next week. Um, I'm going to do one more spinoff from Mulholland Drive. Um, so this is a, a rough uh, trilogy of films based on streets. So we had Sunset Boulevard, Mulholland Drive. So uh, one of the great directors we've not delved into yet is Federico Fellini. So I think we will do Fellini's La Strada, uh, The Road. So we have Sunset Boulevard, Mulholland Drive, and The Road. And the other reason I'm picking it is because it is one of David Lynch's favorite films. Uh, so that's, uh, 19, I think it's 53, uh, Fellini's La Strada. And it's also kind of the first film considered sort of the first of Fellini's sort of, uh, mature films. Oh, fantastic. I'm very, I've only seen one Fellini film, so I'm very excited to, uh, uh, very excited to watch this Barrett, uh, whether the ending of this movie is successful. Um, <laughs> this is a really interesting movie. I'm, I was, I was, uh, really pleased to watch this and to to dig into it a little bit and uh, this is this is a movie that has lots of interesting writing about it in terms of unpacking mm. some of those relationships and I think that really breathes life into this movie uh, in particular ways and it's a great Rita Hayworth performance so that's also very fun so thank you for recommending this and for having this conversation that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about La Strada in the video store <laughs>